Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you have met with us, that you continue to meet with us. I thank you for your promises that as your people call on your name, you will be found. We rely on that this morning, Lord Jesus. And so may you make your presence known to us. May you speak your word to us. May we be changed this morning because we've been in the presence of our King. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you guys uh, would remember, if, if you've been with us for the last, uh, it's been about two months at this point, we have been working through our statement of faith. Uh, the Statement of Faith of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Uh, the reason we're doing this is because what it represents is kind of the basics of our theology, the foundation, the standing stones of our theology. Theology, I, I will say this every single week. For some of you, that's a scary word because that represents like really smart people sitting in really stuffy offices with really thick books. And we go, oh no, I'm not a theologian. I could never. But understand, we all have a theology. Theology simply means our understanding of who God is. We all have a theology. The question is, are we even aware of it? Is it just kind of like making it up as we go, or we kind of heard this at one time or heard that at another time? Do we really even understand the foundations of our faith? And so that's why we're going through this, is to help make sure that we're all on the same page with those foundational building blocks of our faith. The one that we're going to look at today kind of represents our origin story. How many of you in here like comic book movies? Okay, half of us and even half of those were doing this. Really? We don't fit in our culture. Our culture is in love with comic book movies right now. If you didn't know, I'm just going to tell you. If you're one of those people that goes, yeah, I'm not sure. Marvel does it so much better. If it doesn't say Marvel at the beginning, it's not good. Amen. And that's not even my personal preference. That's just fact. Like DC, not as good. Marvel, the best. Our culture is in love with comic book stories. But one of the specific stories that our culture is in love with is origin stories. How did this superhero come to be? A lot of times what they do is they tell kind of a story. They jump into the middle and, you know, here's Spider-Man saving the world or whatever. And then the next movie is going back and going, here's how he became Spider-Man. And people love these movies. They're the highest grossing. We're always hungry for these origin stories. And typically, the origin story follows kind of a pattern, something like this. Our hero goes through some tragedy in their past that sets them up for a difficult life. Maybe in their childhood, they lose someone special to them. That's a very popular one in comic books. Whether it's Uncle Ben or Mom and Dad or whatever, there's, there's some kind of loss. Or if you're Batman and, you know, the everyday hero, you're born into just debilitating wealth. And you have to find a way to, to make it through. But so there's some kind of tragedy that sets you up for difficulty. But then through their difficulty, they find that when they look within, they have this strength to make the changes necessary to become who they need to be. And this is where, uh, another thing we're in love with as a culture, training montages. This is where there's about a three-minute rock song that plays, and a couple weeks or months is smashed together, and you see them sweating and training, and they find that they have this strength within them to make some changes. And then typically something happens that empowers them to save the day. They're bit by a radioactive spider. They get injected with some stuff. Some explosion happens that would kill every other person in the universe, but somehow they come out green and big and strong. They are empowered to help themselves and to help others, and they go on to save the day. There, there's kind of this pattern that comes. It looks bleak, 
they look inside and they find that they have the fight within and then they get empowered to go and do what they need to do to save the day. It's, it's typically some form or fashion of that. Our origin story is slightly different. So let's look at the fifth statement of faith of the Christian Missionary Alliance. Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death. All men are born with a sinful nature, are separated from the life of God, and can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would be a good amen point, but Kim left. Thank you, someone. The portion of the unrepentant and unbelieving is existence forever in conscious torment, and that of the believer in everlasting joy and bliss. So this kind of covers the origin and the final destination. Doesn't talk a whole lot about what happens in the middle. We'll cover that in in subsequent statements, but where man started. Let's look at the beginning. Let's break it down like we've been doing. Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1.27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, in our statement, when it says man, what it means is mankind. There's actually some changing in the wording that in the future potentially would say men and women or mankind or something like that, so that there's no confusion. He's not talking about gender-specific men, but mankind was born in the image of God, was excuse me, not born, created in the image of God. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So let me ask this question. Let's talk here for a minute. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Most of us would know it. Most of us could repeat that back. We all have been born in the image of God. But if somebody really pressed you and said, what does that actually mean? How would you answer them? You don't, again, just shout it out. Okay. Okay. So what you're saying is God went bald early, can grow a decent beard, and struggles with weight. Like that's. All right. No. No, but because this part of it, we go, we talk about the characteristics, but like, which characteristics? What what does it look like? Yeah, one of the good ways to kind of get a grip on what does it mean to, to bear the image of God, to be created in the image of God. It's looking, God created everything, right? But he said man was, was different. Man's the only thing created in that image. What is it that's different about us compared to everything else that he created? So you said will, intelligence. Will, intellect, and emotion. Will, intellect, and emotion. Okay. Having okay. eternal Okay? We are the only things that you will find in the scripture that, that are talked about having a soul, ha- having this eternal nature. We were created as eternal beings. 
There, there's nothing else that is kind of given that same value, that same designation in Scripture. Mankind is the only thing that we find being referred to as having a soul. Okay? What else? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Part part of what we share with with our God, who created us in His image, is He also then gave us His authority and dominion. He said, "Subdue the earth and have dominion over it." That was Adam and Eve's job in the garden. I want you to make this garden what you think that it should be. God kind of let us borrow His authority and His dominion, and that was part of our image bearing. I think at the at the center of it, I mean, we all understand that we're not talking about, like, my son looks somewhat like me. He has my nose and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. God is spirit. We are physical beings. And so it wasn't talking about we look like him in that way. It was more in our characteristics, in our nature. We were created in the image of God, not the physical image, but our character and nature. We, we have been given intelligence. We, we are the only reasoning beings on this planet. We were the only reasoning beings, reasoning beings created because God is a reasoning being. He has a mind and an intellect and a will like we've talked about. We were the only ones given a soul, the only eternal beings. We're the only ones truly capable, capable of knowing God and being known by him. Part of that personhood that we have is the ability to truly know one another. We, we, we're going to talk about communion later, to commune with one another, to know each other not just by sight, but kind of heart to heart and soul to soul. That is an attribute of God that we were given so that we could not only know each other, but know him in a much deeper way than the deer in the forest or whatever other animals or trees or whatever you want to point at. We have a, a, an ability to know God on a deeper level than anything else in creation. This is why we were created. We were created in his image and likeness to know him and to make him known to all creation. So man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death. What is the word that we use for this disobedience? It's a biblical word, sin. I think they, they tried to not use the word sin here because it kind of gets thrown around a lot. And so they were trying to illustrate like disobedience to God. We have all fallen through sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The paycheck at the end of sin, the thing that sin earns us is death, both physical and spiritual. But we have to understand this. Death was never a part of God's creation. Death was never a part of God's plan. We brought death into the picture. God created us in his image in a perfect environment with the ability to commune with him and with each other perfectly, we, through our disobedience, brought death into the scene. We brought physical death into the scene. Adam and Eve, before they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, would never have gotten sick, would never have died. You can read some of the curses that come from it. 
Childbirth apparently wouldn't have been a painful thing. I don't know. I've been in the room, can't imagine it. Maybe the stork really was the original plan. I don't know. But physical death, sickness, pain, death entered through our disobedience. Paul says in Romans 5, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all men because all sinned. We have all fallen from grace. Now we experience pain and sickness and eventually death. It's because of sin. Sin was the the gateway that opened and let death come in. We also experience spiritual death. Spiritual death is a separation from God. We were made in his likeness with the ability to know him, and we were separated from that. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, never allowed to return again, it wasn't just, okay, you have to move and change your address, which is a pain in the butt anyway, but it was this representation this perfect relationship that we had where we would walk in the garden every day and we would talk face to face with one another, it is broken and it is ended. And they had to leave the garden and it was representing this spiritual death. Everything you needed for life was in the garden. And now, in essence, you're on your own. Through your your rebellion, your disobedience, we have received spiritual death. Isaiah 59.2 says it like this, but your iniquities have built barriers between you and your God and your sins have made him hide his face from you so that he does not hear. This is what sin even today currently does, not just when Adam and Eve ate the apple. It wasn't an apple, but it's just easier to say it that way. Sin continues to this day when we choose sin. It puts a barrier between us and our God. It widens the rift between us so that we're not able to commune with him like we were created to. And in fact, he turns his face from us because of our sin. There is this death that occurs as a result of sin. And later, ultimately, we'll talk about it here in a minute, it ends in what's called a second death, an, an ultimate spiritual death. We're in the, the part of the origin story where things are being stacked against us. You read here, we're like, man, there's this loss. There's this thing that just makes life difficult. Ever since sin entered the world, the deck has been stacked against humankind. Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death. All men are born with sinful nature and are separated from the life of God. It's easy to go, wait, 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 wait. So we're all being punished because of something Adam and Eve did thousands of years ago? That doesn't seem fair. Raise your hand if you've ever told a lie. Raise your hand if you've ever looked at someone in a way that they weren't yours to look at in that way. Lusting after them or whatever it may be. Raise your hand if you've ever taken something that wasn't yours. We all have sinned. This kind of brings it from the realm of what they did one day and brings it into our own backyard. We are all responsible. We have all been disobedient and sinned. We all deserve physical and spiritual death. We all just raised our hands in a group full of people and said, I am guilty and I deserve the consequences that come. Romans 3.10, Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
A few verses later, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What it would take to remain in the garden, in that perfect relationship with God, is perfection. Never once being disobedient to his word, and we all just said, I'm guilty of it. Ever since Adam and Eve chose sin, we have all been born with a sinful nature, with a natural propensity to sin, to fight authority, to be in control, and we have all chosen sin. David says this in Psalm 51, indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David's saying, look, as far back as I have been, I have chosen sin. Think about it this way. We've talked about this before. Think about any baby or small child you have ever met. They are sinful little buggers. We do not have to teach them how to take something they want. We do not have to teach them how to be selfish. We do not have to teach them. We do not teach them how to hit when they get angry. We spend all of our time trying to teach them the other way, trying to course correct. Their nature, all of our nature, is to be selfish, is to take what I want. I don't care who I hurt. We literally have to teach kids, how did that make the other person feel? Because all they care about is what I want and how I feel. That, in its essence, is sin. And child or children are born with this. Each and every one of us is born with this. And we've spent the rest of our lives trying to course correct and move away from that. We have been born with a sinful nature, a natural disposition leaning towards sin. We've been separated from the life of God because of our sin. Each and every one of us lives outside of the garden because of our sin. So let me ask you this question. Why is sin such a big deal? Why, like, okay, so we've all told a lie, right? Every single one of us, even if it was just a small little white lie. Why would that deserve death? Like, and not just, okay, physical death, spiritual death. Why would sin have such huge consequences? Couldn't God just kind of put on his big boy pants and get over it a little bit? You know what I mean? Why does it have these massive consequences? Because then God wouldn't be holy. It's a holy God has to be perfect. Okay. The standard, like we said, is perfection, not 99%. 99% has another word, imperfect. The standard is perfection. Anything short of that, we don't measure up. Why else? Why, why is sin such a big deal? Okay, so yeah, it, it, we would all really struggle if our legal system said, eh, we're just going to let those ones go by. We're just not really going to deal with those ones. Like, there's something inside of us that wants justice, and God is a just God. Every act of disobedience has to have a consequence. But let me ask you this, because when you look at our legal system, everything you do, if you jaywalk, that's not a death sentence. If you shoplift, you steal something, that's not a death sentence, Right? Certain things do carry a heavier penalty than others, but it seems like every sin carries the same penalty. Why is that such a big deal? Like, why, why couldn't some of them just be like, okay, God was like, 
okay, you're in a timeout chair for two years, and then you can come back into the garden and we'll be fine. They all carried this death sentence. Every sin is an affront to God and distorts the image he put in us. Every sin at its core is treason. If you think about it, like the essence of every sin, we just look at the action, we go, who did it really hurt? It was a small lie. It was a, every sin at its core is treason. You are not God, I'm God. You are not king, I'm king. You don't decide what's right and wrong, I decide what's right and wrong. In every culture throughout all of recorded history, there has only ever been one penalty for treason, death. We, it is kingdom treason to look at the king of kings and go, I'm not doing it your way, I'm going to do it my way. I know better than you is an act of treason. Whether it's a small lie to get myself out of an uncomfortable situation or whether it's taking the life of another person, very di- they look very different, but at the core of them is I'm in control. I decide what's right and what's wrong, what's, what's good and what's bad. At the heart of every single sin is treason. And the penalty for treason is death. Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death. All men are born with a sinful nature, are separated from the life of God, and here comes the good news, and can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we looked at this in our second statement of faith. It says, Jesus Christ is the true God and the true man. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He died upon the cross, the just for the unjust, as a substitutionary sacrifice. And all who believe in him are justified on the grounds of his shed blood. He arose from the dead according to the scriptures. He is now at the right hand of majesty on high as our great high priest. He will come again and establish his kingdom, righteousness, and peace. It is only through the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus that anyone can be saved. It is is only through Jesus' death on the cross in our place, not for anything he had done, not for any sins he had committed, but for your sins, to take the penalty of your sins so that we can now have life. There's something that is often referred to, you've heard me say, as the great exchange. Jesus on the cross, he said, let's trade places. I will take all of your sin and its consequences, all of your shame, the wrath of God, your guilt. I'll take that on me. And what you will get from me instead is all of my righteousness. When we look at the books to see, okay, what do I owe? When you look under our name, all of a sudden, all the offenses and the debts are gone. And now we get credit for all of the righteous things that he has done. It's only through receiving that substitutionary sacrifice that any of us can be saved from this death that we have earned. We're going to get more next week into what some of that practically looks like to receive that, to put our faith in that. But Paul in Ephesians says this, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with the Messiah, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not from works, so that no one can boast. The the only thing that changes our story is the finished work of Jesus on the cross. 
That is the only way out of this death sentence that we find ourselves in. Speaking of that great exchange, Paul says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Took our sin and put on us his own righteousness. Finally, Romans chapter five. For while we were still helpless, couldn't do a thing to save ourselves. At the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? Did you catch it there? He didn't just say, though we were kind of like fumbling through doing the best we can and kind of like help, he hit the helpless part. While we were his enemies. We, we like to kind of build ourselves up a little bit, but none of us apart from Christ were like trying to even live up to it. We were standing opposed to him. I am king. I am God. You are not. This is the stance of the unsaved. And I don't mean to say it harshly, but that is what is holding people back when they hear the good news of Jesus and they don't respond is I don't want to give up control to him. And to, to fight him in that is to remain as, like Paul says, his enemy. So let's look again at an origin story. Again, typically, our hero has a tragedy in their past that sets them up for a difficult life. Through that difficulty, they find the strength within to make some kind of change. And then something happens to empower them to come in and to save the day. But that is not our origin story. Ours goes a little more something like this. We're born with the deck stacked against us, thanks to those that went before us. We make bad choices and continue to dig ourselves deeper and deeper. We try to save ourselves and we fail again and again. We look inside ourselves only to find that we don't have what's necessary to make the changes needed. And this is where the story splits. Some remain in this situation trying to claw their way out of the pit, but all the while falling deeper and deeper into it. Those that hear this story and respond to it, they cry out for help, and the real hero of the story swoops in and saves the day. I mean, hear this. We are more Lois Lane than we are Superman. We, we want to tell our origin story and look at how good I am and look at what I did. We're, we're that damsel in distress, in need of saving you know what? No, we're not Lois Lane. We're Lex Luthor. We're the enemy of Superman. And we're fighting a losing battle. That gives us too much credit. We are a low-level henchman of Lex Luthor's who one day realizes I'm on the wrong side, but I'm in so deep, Lex won't let me out. There's nothing I can do. And so we, as some nameless henchman, call out to Superman, would you rescue me? I, I want to switch sides, but I can't. Would you swoop in and save me? He is the story. Or he, he is the hero. This is his story. We are simply crying out as his enemies, would you come and save me? I want to switch sides, but the chasm's too big. Would you come and rescue me? Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. 
He fell through disobedience, incurring thereby both physical and spiritual death. All men are born with a sinful nature, are separated from the life of God, and can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The portion of the unrepentant and unbelieving is existence forever in conscious torment, and that of the believer in everlasting joy and bliss. Remember I said in that origin story, there's that, that spot where it splits, where we have that choice, when we recognize I'm not where I want to be. I'm on the wrong side. I, I'm in a hole, and I need to get out. Some choose to keep trying themselves. Certainly, I'll be able to rescue myself. Those are the, the unrepentant, those that refuse to change from their old ways, and the unbelieving, those that refuse to cry out to Jesus so that he can come and save the day. And it says that their portion, portion meaning that thing that they earned, the, the paycheck, what they have coming to them, the portion of the unrepentant and unbelieving is existence forever in conscious torment. We call this hell. In the end, there are only two kinds of people. Those that have cried out to Jesus and received what he has done for them on the cross and those who have not. We're going to look at this at one of our other statements of faith, but one day we will all stand before the judge and either Jesus comes to our defense and says, I took care of it, they're not guilty anymore. Or we stand and try to defend ourselves and it is a losing case. There's only two kinds of people, the unrepentant and the unbelieving and the repentant and the believing. That's it. Ultimately, that's what it all boils down to. The portion for those that are unrepentant and unbelieving. Revelation 21 says this, those who are victorious will inherit all of this. We'll talk about what all of this is here in a minute. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death an ultimate and final death. One that there's, there's no more chances after that point. Once we have been declared guilty and the sentence is passed, it is over. This is the second death, finally separated from God. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians, talking about that day, says he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. Church, if I can just tell you, if this doesn't break your heart, something is wrong. We, we keep talking about the mission that God has called us to, and we're going to talk more specifically about it in a couple weeks, but like, if we're not on mission, let me be very clear, it's because our hearts are in the wrong place. If we don't walk through our days seeing the lost and something inside of us doesn't break and weep over them, we've hardened our hearts to the call of God. To look at people, neighbors, family members, coworkers, and literally to say, to hell with you. You're not worth the uncomfortable moment of sharing with you the best news you could ever hear. Something is wrong with us, church. I've been reading some different things. Nationally, less than 1% of believers will share their faith this year. 
We have less than 100 people that come on an average Sunday. So less than one person in a year will share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone. That is treason. We have been given the keys to set people free. And if we just sit on them, keep them to ourselves, we look nothing like our Lord who gave up everything to come to where we were while we were enemies, while we were still sinning. We had done nothing to deserve it. We had done nothing to move towards him. And he came all the way and suffered so that we could be set free. Why don't we look the same, church? And listen, this is not me standing up here throwing rocks at you. I ask the same question to myself. Why am I so hesitant to move toward people? Because it's, it's messy. Because they're going to do it wrong. Because what if they actually did come to church? Would they even fit in here? I mean, they don't, the way they look, the way, all of this sinful junk goes through my mind. But in the end, if they don't hear the good news if they don't have repeated opportunity to respond to the good news, their final destiny is hell, is eternal separation from the presence and majesty of God. And some people would hear this and they would think the, the theological term is obliteration, that if you don't follow Jesus, like the second death is literally you just, you just die, you're snuffed out, there's no more existence for you. I wish it was that easy. I truly do. If there was one thing in the scriptures that I, that I could change, it would be hell. Either just get rid of it altogether or make it something where kind of like, ooh, it sucks, but at least they're not suffering. We've not been given that option. Hell is scarier than you can imagine. Like hell, hell is bigger than I wish that it was. Here's how Jesus talks about this final separation. In Matthew 13, he tells this parable. Uh, to, to a crowd of people, he says that one day the farmer comes out and he sows all of his seed. And after a time, he comes back and he sees weeds growing up among the wheat. And his servants come to him and they go, what happened? How did it get here? He says, my enemy planted weeds. And they go, should we go tear them all out? He says, no, 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 we'll wait till the harvest and then we'll separate the good from the bad, the, the wheat from the weeds. The weeds will be bound up and thrown into the fiery furnace. And his disciples, as they often do, they come up to him and they go, we didn't get it. Like, what, what did you mean by that? And so Jesus breaks it down for them. And he answered them, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth, is used by Jesus again and again when he talks about that day for the unbelievers. And it's meant to, to help his hearers understand this is a horrible place where people are wailing and weeping, gnashing their teeth because they are in such pain and anguish, they're grinding their teeth audibly. He's trying to help them understand this is worse than anything you can imagine, but this is the destiny of those who don't hear and respond to the gospel. And he's not telling this to his disciples. So he can go, I just wanted you to know, here's where they're headed. 
He then continues to call them on to mission. You're the hope for them. Go out into all of the places and share the good news of the kingdom because you, church, are the only hope for them. There is no plan B. But this is their destiny if we sit by and do nothing. The portion of the unrepentant and believing is existence forever in conscious torment. And that of the believer in everlasting joy and bliss. Sometimes we use the word heaven, and again, I think we have too small of an understanding of heaven. I don't think we could ever fully grasp heaven or hell for that matter. But sometimes we just think like, oh good, that place where everything's just going to be easy. Which, it will be easy in heaven. But here's how heaven is described to John in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. For those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, the thing we have to look forward to is going back to the garden where there was no more death and pain and sickness and sorrow, where we have perfect unity with our God. Not like the best we can hope for now is to like, when we pray, we feel like he answers it. We, we feel heard by him. And, and we have these, these experiences that are kind of fleeting where we go, man, I just felt God's presence. But one day when he lives among his people, that he will be our God and he will be with us in a way never before seen. I, I often say, we're going back to the garden, but this time it's urban. It's a city instead of a garden, but it's God walking perfectly with his people. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more death, mourning, crying, or pain. The old order. We, right now, we live in the old order, and he says, this is passing away. And what's coming for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ is everlasting joy and bliss as a reward for our faith. This is good news, yes, church? This is why we're going to come to the communion table. I'm going to ask if someone, Sarah, can you go get the children's church kids? I want for them to come and partake of communion with us here in a moment. This is what we come to celebrate at the communion table. Not that we were pretty good and when Jesus came, things just got a little better, but that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses. But through what Jesus has done on our behalf, we now have been given life. We have, we have been moved from enemies, standing opposed, weapons in hand, to sons and daughters of the king. We have been adopted in. We have been moved from a hopeless future to one brighter than we can ever fathom. Amen. This is why we remember the communion table. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't just something that happened 2,000 years ago, and we just don't want to forget it. It is still meaningful and powerful to us today. It is the only gateway to life with Jesus now and one day in eternity perfectly. It is because of his death and his resurrection in our place. So as the kids will come back in here, 
in a moment, and I prepare the elements. Uh, I was busy trying to fix a drum pedal, so communion brought to you by Kroger. Two for four with a card. Um, this is typically done beforehand. There's an important distinction when, uh, when it says that all men were born with a sinful nature, uh, but we've been saved through the atoning work of Jesus. Like here, this is very practically speaking. That doesn't mean we no longer have a sinful nature. That doesn't mean we no longer battle with sin. That doesn't mean we no longer choose treason against now our father. No longer our enemy, but our father. It means we have a way back. It means that we can choose to repent and that his blood once again covers us and makes us white as snow. His mercies are made new every day, it says. And so even for those of us that have chosen to follow Christ, again, this isn't just a once and done thing that happened a long time ago. His death was once for all time, but we receive it again and again to cover our sins, to empower us to change and to be cleansed and brought back into perfect relationship with our Father. And so that's why communion is something we do regularly. It's that reminder. Jesus, as the bread represents, broken in our place, literally ripped apart on our behalf. That was our destiny. That was what we deserved. But he was broken in our place. His blood, as the juice represents, shed for us drained out of him as ours deserved to be so that we could be covered by it and somehow washed white as snow. So let's take a moment now, and like we do each week, just allow the Lord to examine our hearts. Are there any of those places this week, this month, where I've committed treason against you? Any of those ways where, where I've said, you're not in control, I'm in control. And this is our opportunity to repent. God, I want to turn from my old ways and turn back to you. Because of what you've done on my behalf, I want to be made clean so that I can walk with you as I'm supposed to. So let's take a few moments now and just ask God if any of those are there to reveal those to you. I'll pray in a moment and we're going to sing a song together. And then after that, you'll be invited to come and partake of communion.